Welcome to the Lions Roar Dharma Center podcast from Dona Darge Temple. This public talk by Lama Yeshe Jinpa was recorded during a regularly scheduled Monday evening teaching. I'm finishing up talking about introduction to the Middle Way, Chandra Kirti's Badyamaka Vatara. So, this this book. How many people have this book in the audience? How many people have finished? Not yet. Okay. So, can can you get uh, can you get me uh, give me some essay by? in the next week or so, by the end of the month, I think. Yeah. So mostly these um, meetings, I want to talk about how we do scholarship, not just write the right answer is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. So uh, overall here at Dona Darge, uh, if we're not actually doing the yogic practices of uh, meditation, the inner yogas, uh, we won't understand what's going on. And if we're not getting equated with Mahamudra and Dzogchen, at least starting from that point of view, um, then it's going to be hard to understand where we're going. So even though we, we kind of start Lamrim from uh, renunciation going up, we also have to start from uh, realization and go down. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, we get into this trip of like, I've got to master every single step before I move on to the next step. And I'll never get there and those kinds of things. Likewise, if we just start at the top and we go, all I'm reading is, uh, you know, Dzogchen material, I don't do any renunciation. Um, it, it's like sitting in the lodge and looking at the summit. So uh, just as our uh, energy runs up and down our central channel, we, we have to start at the bottom and go up and start at the top and go down. But it's absolutely essential that uh, we have uh, at least an intellectual understanding uh, of the most profound views. Otherwise, I just don't see how people do it. In fact, they don't. They don't make it. At some point, they kind of go into perfectionist ideas or victim ideas and uh, get get lost in the weeds. So uh, that's why, like on the 30th, I'm uh, holding like a short uh, retreat here um, Who's able on Dzogchen? Who's able to come? Yay! Well, that's good. So, <clears throat> uh, and Roberta will be up doing Nunye, right? Do you want to tell people what that is? It worked. Yeah. 
So that's totally cool. So, uh, everyone here is coming? Yeah? Who's, who can't make it on the 30th? Yeah, Saturday. Maybe Sophie, you're going to take refuge before the retreat. That's possible, right? Yeah. <clears throat> I pledged my teacher, uh, my root teacher, that I would teach Dzogchen in the proper way by, you know, having people commit to the Buddha Dharma, know what they're doing, uh, understand who I am, and understand the lineages and so forth. So it isn't just kind of, um, I don't know, uh, open air <laughs> or something, I don't know, cheapened, cheapened or something, I don't, I don't know. Because uh, uh, in, in Tibet, many times you couldn't, uh, and maybe even now with very traditional teachers, you, you, you can't even look at a Mahamudra or Chen text. You'd get in trouble, actually. It was a lot easier before the internet to, uh, <laughs> the internet's ruined and helped. So, but uh, I want people to get uh, at least accurate information of you and join the information with the meditation uh, so that we can actually you know, stabilize the view. <clears throat> Having the study uh, going on at the same time uh, really aids uh, both meditation uh, and the view. It uh, sharpens our intellect. It blows out the cobwebs, right? So uh, all the incredible teachers that I've studied with um, were not like unscholarly. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, incredible scholar, everything. Um, all the teachers I know were very scholarly. They they were readers. They could debate. They could. Uh, they 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 didn't just say I, I'm not reading any books. Therefore, I'm more enlightened. No, nobody said that. Um, when Arjun Rimshe is coming um, this Saturday, he's going to he's in the process of reciting uh, all the the conjure the scriptures. Um, from the beginning to the end. So uh, when I got, uh, I think maybe Patty got the email too, and I got the email from his uh, attendant, and he says, well, sometimes this gets in the way of his activities because he's going, i got to finish this recitation. Um, I have no idea where he is in that pledge, but I think he's, we're just going to meet him in the middle and he's going to recite something and then uh, tell you know what he's working on and tell stories and stuff like that. So it's very authentic. It's really nifty. I don't know another teacher that's um, actually done that. Um, I can't. You know, there's like huge volumes of everything. So there's the words of the Buddha and uh, and different. Uh, people, and, and then there's commentaries, the Shastras, and that's Tanjur. Uh So, uh, I think he's doing the first, the words of the Buddha, but um, he'll uh, 
he'll really give a good talk because he's he's scholarly and um, a very uh, you know very international um, and very uh, humble too. Uh, his uh, main monastery, which he was at for the longest period of time until his escape, was Kumbum, up in Amdo, you know, where Tsongkhapa was born, right? So he's regarded in the tradition as being uh, a tolku of uh, the tolku of Tsongkhapa's father, actually. But he doesn't come off that way. He's just like, hi. <laughs> so... He may or may not be wearing robes. You know, sometimes we've had him come and just he's wearing just his street clothes and uh, very kind of low church. So uh, we don't know, but uh, he's been regarded very highly by the Dalai Lama because the Dalai Lama asked him to supervise the uh, center in Bloomington uh, after uh, the Dalai Lama's brother had to retire. So he's been given a lot of responsibilities and has asked me to teach there, but uh, I haven't been able to leave here for several years. Plus, I don't want to teach in the summer when it's, you know, <laughs> blue. Anybody been to Indiana in the summer? Is that right? It's terrible. <laughs> it's muggy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, but so, okay. <clears throat> So uh, we need we need to practice the full uh, length of the teachings, from you know renunciation all the way up to completion. So it's like an elevator; we go up and then we come down again, and we repeat it again and again until we we get into the full rhythm of the teachings, so that we can teach on the level of zochen, or you can teach on the level of renunciation. So we're able to have the full range of teachings. <clears throat> but uh, to do it traditionally, uh, it's supposed to be, uh, you know, somewhat of a closed retreat with people you know that are um, sincere, right? So we we have that. I'm delighted. <clears throat> When Arjun Rinpoche is here, it, it, if somebody wants to ask a question about, you know, something, uh, you know, with Nagarjuna or Tsongkhapa Aryadeva, you know, feel free to do that, right? That's okay. Be careful, though. Don't try to be too clever. <laughs> that happens sometimes. It's okay, but... All right. So, and... The introduction in the middle way, uh, the uh, the structure is interesting because Chandrakirti introduces the ideas of the bhumis, right? The grounds or foundations. And people are going, what is that? Uh, well, it's actually um, a way of talking about the path that um, we find in... Uh, non-Madhyamaka literature that we find in the practitioners of yoga literature, the Yogacara. So we know that uh, Chandrakirti was uh, familiar with the other uh, styles of talking about the path. 
in India, people just all hung out together. They hadn't solidified into, uh, you know, rival schools particularly. Uh, people would have different viewpoints and and talk and debate, um, and it wasn't like one whole monastery was one thing. It was more like a university setting, uh, the way you know big universities are. So uh, I want to talk about the Bhumis and uh, why they're important to know about. The first Bhumi is called uh, the Very Joyous. Uh, this is uh, traditionally uh, the start or someone is becoming established uh, uh, as a bodhisattva. <clears throat> I, <laughs> I remember, like in the early 70s, um, uh, when I was studying with Trungpa Rinpoche, um, I had a meditation teacher, and uh, everyone was assigned a meditation instructor, meditation teacher, and the meditation teacher said, well, to do this retreat or whatever it was with Rinpoche, you had to have attained the first Bhumi. <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> you know, how do you do that? You know, you go ask somebody for the secret handshake. and uh, <laughs> Nobody showed up. <laughs> uh, because uh, the idea here is that um, we actually have some uh, non some direct non-conceptual uh, insight into emptiness. Okay. <clears throat> uh, so actually, you know, it isn't uh, uh, it isn't as hard as we might think because we're thinking, okay, the the very joyous um, means we've had to have complete realization at that point. No, actually, we're just talking about the glimpse where uh, you know you've seen it. There are glimpses where you're not sure. It's like seeing somebody in a crowd and somebody says, did you see so-and-so? I saw somebody that looked like her, but I don't think so. But then sometimes we actually have just a momentary glimpse and then we're certain. Does anybody can think of that in their own experience where you've just seen something quickly or a glimpse of something, and and then you know it. Think about it. Something that you've seen uh, quickly, and you you have certainty. Well, how about on the conventional level? <clears throat> something that has been like you've seen it quickly and then it passed, but it was certain. Street sign. Street sign. <laughs> <laughs> Andrea. That's yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's the turn off. Andrea, what? We have a lot of people working in our office. Sometimes when I'm going through it, I'll see something and somebody will ask me about it later. I'm like, yeah, I, I saw that. I was just going through that stack of paper. I know exactly where that is. Yeah, just simple. Uh, sometimes, uh, 
you know, since I'm kind of a romantic, we can we can just glimpse someone and we know that they like us. You know, it's just intuitive. You just like it's a little electricity or something and you just feel that spark. And you just kind of like, there's something there. You know, you just catch it. And it's fleeting, but the very fleeting nature of it, uh, the glimpse, um, uh, is confirming. It's just, it's just so, so real. Can anybody else think of something? Yes. The first time I really turned to meditation <coughs> and Just a glint, yeah, just quick. Yeah. Someone else had their hand up? No? Yes? So, um, over the summer, I kind of was going through a rough patch, and I hadn't really talked to anybody about it, but he texted me without knowing what I was going through, and it really resonated with me, and it turned to be a big one connection. Likewise, at another point, it might be without knowing anything. We hadn't talked in a bit. He just sent me a text, like, okay, I'm just going to this part. And likewise, like, one time I just felt like something <laughs> with Patty. Yeah. So I felt the need to text her, and then when we saw each other in person, he was telling me that she was going through some stuff. So sometimes, like, just those little glimpses of a connection with someone, when you yeah. just feel like something's wrong with them, and you don't see them or haven't spoken in for a long time. Yeah. yeah, it's when we step outside, particularly with. Uh, the first bimi, it's when we step outside our, our uh, conventional, usual way of thinking. Something, something it's a new, a new perspective. Uh, so, you know, emptiness doesn't mean always like we don't see anything. <laughs> that, that, that's not emptiness, like all's the blank. No, it's when we, our usual framework uh, we, we see uh, in a new way. Yes. Yeah. Sure. The rice. Uh, first chapter, perfect joy, abiding firmly in the minds of bodhisattvas. Holy beings endowed with lovely light, this joyful ground is like the water crystal gem that scatters the obscuring dark and reigns supreme. <clears throat> so, uh, here, Chandakirti equates the joyous with um, the first paramita. Oh, 16. Um, giving, void of giver, gift, receiver, is called the paramita that transcends the world. But when attachments to these three occurs, the teachings that have defined it as the perfect act of worldly ones. <coughs> so, uh, 
there's another thing that's going on here is Chandrakirti's bringing in the paramitas. I haven't really talked about the paramitas, right? Uh, usually we're talking about six, but actually uh, in uh, many cases in Vajrayana we're talking about ten. So uh, everyone's uh, first lineage refuge name is uh, going to be a paramita, right? Do you, does anybody know what the what number the paramita is? Yeshe, Jana, what? You, 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 <laughs> well, we'll see. So, you, okay, you guys check it out. You can check it out after this. Yeah. Yeah. Jhana. <clears throat> Jhana Paramita. Okay, well, it's a little hint. It's, it's up there. Okay. <laughs> so, just... <laughs> So a little hint, yeah. So um, this uh, text is very interesting because uh, for those who are reading it or have read it, or uh, you know, you're, you're seeing a lot of the same familiar arguments and, and style of Madhyamika, reason, Madhyamika reasoning, but then uh, we're bringing in uh, the Paramitas and the Bhumis, right? Does it feel like finally? There's something we can put our arms around, like, oh, great, okay. He's talking about, you know, some grounds, some things that seem to have some existence. Yeah, yes. I was stricken by that when I went back to, to read it. Um, and I thought, well, it's the first ground, so mm. I should spend extra attention talking about the first ground. Mm. And I was curious how practicing generosity, specific types of generosity, of course, um, is going to lead to <clears throat> realization of the emptiness itself and discarding the three fetters. Well, we're talking about um, Dana Paramita here. So, uh, we're not talking about um, I'm intending to be giving, and we're not talking about I'm thinking about giving it to this person or this thing, and uh, we're not talking about what we're giving. So that's why it's kind of interesting. These short spontane these short glimpses are somewhat spontaneous, right? So the paramita of giving. Uh, uh, you know, was uh, is you know very spontaneous, right? We we're not we catch ourselves being spontaneous, so we're giving over uh, our fixed atman self, right, to a new open way of seeing. So the giving is not 
generally the paramita of giving doesn't have to be just the conventional, like let me give this to you and transfer this over to you because you need this. It, it, it is going to be uh, a giving, perhaps a giving up of a fixed, fixated state of mind to uh, an open one. But um, you, you can't, you're not going to plan it. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then it also leads to more grasping of I just want to have that again. Which we're not supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, that's why we need a second parmit, a second bumi and another paramita, right? Yeah. Yes. But we do try to practice that like in the dedication. Yes. I mean that's what we're yeah. practicing. Yeah. We're we're always gonna be practicing uh you know, relative and absolute together. And uh, we're, we're always going to talk about the paramita and the absolute uh, nature of awareness, even though we say you can't really talk about it. So, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we, we want to practice conventional giving where we're saying, I know I'm giving this book to you. And we also uh, are practicing spontaneous uh, giving over at the same time, I think. But it's also what he said. Yes. The empty eye is giving this empty book to the empty Yes, yes. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a weird experience when the conventional and the absolute are kind of coming together. So you're using conventional language and doing conventional uh, activity, but... Uh, there's uh, a different perspective that's kind of feels weird because it's not it's not so uh, it feels like a fiction yeah but the conventional self we're doing it but it feels like a little bit maybe like we're um, in a play we're in a we're in a play so we we know we're we're speaking some lines um, uh, and creating a character like that. Strong inner and outer awareness at the same time. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so the uh, second bumi. <clears throat> Immaculate. The qualities of perfect discipline are theirs, and thus they spurn disordered conduct even in their dreams. The actions of their body, speech, and mind are pure. They practice tenfold virtue on the sacred aspect, on sacred path. Indeed, their path of virtue in its tenfold aspect, now perfected, is extremely pure, like ever radiant, like the autumn moon, their discipline is lovely in its soothing light. So we're talking about immaculate and joining it with uh, discipline. For like five dollars, what what's the Sanskrit for discipline? Paramita. 
No, close, but no. It's a, it, the trick is it's a little bit like uh, uh, it's a, a woman's name, Sheila, Sheila. So like that. <clears throat> So when we're saying immaculate, uh, what are we talking about? What 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 makes it immaculate? Okay, I know you've read it. Okay, but <clears throat> yes. So. Verse 9, restraint, the agent and the object of the same, all discipline observed with these three thoughts, is said to be a perfect worldly deed. But when these three are absent, it transcends the world. 10, deriving from the radiant mood of discipline, the glory of the world, while yet transcending it, the bodhisattvas, free from stains, are now immaculate. And like the moonlit in the autumn sky, they soothe away the sorrows from the mind of wanderers. Here ends the second grounder stage in the cultivation of absolute bodhicitta. So he's talking about bodhisattvas too, right? We haven't really haven't hit as much on bodhisattvas. So we have the bhumis, the bodhisattva activity, and the paramitas. Yes. There were threes. Three concerns and three. Huh. Um, the threes. Yeah, the threes. Where, where in the text are the threes mentioned? Where the, where are the texts in the? Um, first three. Uh-huh. The last line from dualistic thoughts and then the three concerns. Uh, are we on chapter two here? Chapter two. I'm lo- Okay, and what verse are we on? Uh, three. Oh, okay. If discipline is looked upon as truly and by nature pure, this very thing deprives it of its purity. The bodhisattvas thus are always and completely free from dualistic thoughts, and hence the three concerns. I'm not sure what the three concerns are, but I think it's the three concerns, uh, uh, you know, are the self, the agent, and the object, and the, the delivery. I think that's what he's saying, yeah. So it's not that we're being, uh, once again, it's like, how do we do this, you know? So uh, if we're looking upon our discipline as being utterly pure, that very thing de- deprives it of its purity. Yeah, we're not, there's no dualistic thoughts. We, we can't be saying, yeah. <clears throat> There's uh, some some good stories in in Zen that help illustrate. You know, from time to time, I like to use them, like from some of the Koan stories. So there was uh, uh, in in Kyoto. There's uh, a temple that has one thousand one thousand armed Chenrezis. They're uh, wooden sculptures, life-size, 
unfortunately, the gold has kind of faded. You know, they haven't. I don't think they've repainted them in a thousand years, but um, quite impressive. So the uh, uh, the story is the Roshi or Abbot says to one of those trainees, uh, the, which uh, which eye is the true eye? You know, so that's kind of a con one would work on in Zen. Uh, but uh, so yes, different people. The one, the one I'm always very fond of, um, and there are different ones. Like, you know, the eye covers the whole body, or the, all the eyes are the true eye. But uh, one of the ones that I like is. Uh, why it's like reaching for a pillow in the middle of the night. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Have you ever done that? But you don't know you're doing it, right? You're Throw just a throwing one in the middle of the night. <laughs> so you're you're just reaching for the pillow and tucking it under your head. Perfect discipline. Just works perfectly. There's no, there's no thought like, I need to get a pillow to put under my head. You just, isn't that nice? Refuge usually starts going off around that time. That's my mind starts going to refuge rather than grasping. Yeah. <laughs> so discipline, uh, pure discipline. Um, we're, we're not reflect. We're not saying, I'm, I'm being a pure bodhisattva doing pure discipline. But we could say that. I mean, it's okay. It's okay. I'm trying to, I'm trying to do some pure discipline. We could say that, knowing that it's conventional. Don't you think? Would that be okay? Greg, what do you think? <laughs> what's, what's the third boomy? Look at your book. Did you bring a book? What's the What's the third chapter? <laughs> luminous, luminous. Yeah, luminous. So sometimes people have read uh, the different turnings of the wheel. Mm-hmm. What What's the first turning of the wheel? Four Noble Truths, yeah, Fold Path. And, and what's the second turning of the wheel? These are Mahayana categories, of course. Uh, really, they're Prajnaparamita, yeah, which would include conventional ultimate. Uh, the third turning of the wheel is uh, talking about the nature of mind, luminous, luminosity. That always sounds better than clarity, don't you think? What, what does it sound better? Yeah, because it's clear light. Yeah, same thing though. Yeah, it's just. But is it okay to say clear? Yeah. It's interesting reading Mahamudra and Dzogchen texts. Of course, uh, the the ones we're reading are translated into English, uh, and you know some words really resonate with us. So when we say clear, we go, okay, clear. But when we say luminous, we go, okay, luminous, right? <laughs> many, many of the, yeah. 
you know, many of uh, the, um, uh, like, words uh, sound niftier, like um, sal, you know, like, sometimes translated as expression. The expression of the mind expresses itself through images and appearance of thoughts. Um, or uh, do we like manifest better? We like manifest better than express the expression of the mind? How about effulgence? Oh. No, that's too. That's over the top. Yeah. Let's let's read a little bit about luminous. <clears throat> because the fire that burns the wood of all phenomena produces light, the third ground has been called the luminous. Here, the offspring of the conqueror behold a copper-colored glow as of the rising sun. For bodhisattvas, those who see the absence of the self, agent, object, time, and manner of the wounds, all things are like the image in a glass. By understanding thus, all torments are endured. I'm sorry, he's talking earlier about we're being cut into pieces. If you respond in anger when another harms you, does your wrath remove the harm inflicted? Resentment surely serves no purpose in this life and brings adversity in lives to come. Feels like, uh, for those who have read Shanti Deva's, and I, I know Dirk is reading Shanti Deva with people, the Bodhicharvatara, it sounds like Bodhicharvatara a lot, doesn't it? He's talking. Yeah, the whole thing does, yeah. <clears throat> you can see why the text, both those texts, became so popular in Tibet. You know, this text and uh, Bodhicharvatara because it brings together the highest um, realizations with uh, very practical instructions about how to live our life. Does it feel practical? <coughs> I hope so. Then it goes, you know, talks about the antidote, patience. <clears throat> patience makes you beautiful and dear to holy beings. Through patience you are skilled in knowing right from wrong. In afterlives you will be born as human or divine, and negativity will have no hold on you. Common folk and bodhisattvas both who understand the good of patience and the ill of wrath, abandon anger swiftly and forever, adapting patience praised by noble ones. But patience, even pledged to perfect Buddhahood, if practiced with the three concerns, is bound within the world. Yet practiced without reference, this the Buddha said, it leads beyond the world, transcendent, perfect. The bodhisattvas on this ground enjoy clairvoyance and samadhi, desire and anger are wholly rooted out. They are at all times able to subdue the cravings of this kingdom of desire. The first three virtues, giving and the rest, the Buddha praised in general for the householders. Through these is gathered what is known as merit, the source of enlightened rupakaya. Luminous and shining like the sun, such bodhisattvas utterly remove all darkness from themselves. Their wish is to scatter others' gloom. Upon this ground they know no anger, though their minds are keenly sharp. Anger. Anger. We should quit talking about anger. <laughs> <laughs>
recently uh, Dirk and Susan went down to see Venerable Damchu from Sarvasti Abbey. She talked about the eight worldly concerns, right? Do people know the eight worldly concerns? Yeah. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, (laughs) praise and blame, recognition and obscurity. What did she use? Yeah, well, recognition and uh, bad, bad repetition. Bad repetition. Ill repute. Yeah. Ill repute. Yeah. But I, but I like obscurity better too. Because <laughs> 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 ill repute's too much like blame. Yeah. It's a little, yeah, it's like, you know. Mm. So, uh, when I've talked to many people, uh, a lot of times people will say, you know, I'm, I'm, you know I, I can endure a lot of pain. And I'm not greedy for a lot of worldly goods. And I don't need to be appraised a lot. But damn it if they don't want to be recognized. The anger, the, the self just wants to be acknowledged. It's really hard. So, uh, my, my question when I meet with teachers, too, is what, what do you think I most like to talk about from talking about one's practice? I do like to ask people what you're working on. You're right. I usually try to steer the con- conversation around to anger. usually try to steer around like, what makes you angry? <laughs> it's always interesting when people deny getting angry, right? That's a shit detector question if there ever was one. They're scary. Yeah, they're, they're scary. <laughs> yes, you're right. There's, there's a postal, <laughs> the postal situation. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I'm fond of telling sometimes when uh, uh, Chargud Rimshay visited Sacramento uh, with, uh, you know, the Chargud Kondro, his you know, wife Jane, and they're, they're, they're very real about talking about anger, you know. I love that, you know, like, how do you deal with anger in relationships and the practice and stuff like that? Because it's so difficult, isn't it? It's so difficult. <clears throat> so, uh, so many times, uh, uh, anger uh, is talked about in the scriptures, and in Vajrayana, anger is seen as uh, a little bit bigger problem than desire. A little bit bigger problem. Whereas in Theravada or Hinayana practices, Desire and attachment are the big problem, right? When people are talking the Vipassana style from Theravada, they're always saying, I, I don't want to become too attached. Grasping. Grasping is the big problem. 
And it is, grasping at delusion is the big problem ultimately, but uh, the idea is you're working on detachment, right? You're working on a little less emotional, but in, uh, from that standpoint of desire, but in Vajrayana, we're a little bit more focused on anger. Does anybody guess why that might be? Why is anger, why do we think anger is the bigger problem? A lot of energy. <clears throat> Pardon me? Uh, yeah. What else? It creates a delusion of truth and it energizes you and then mm. leads to more painful consequences to yourself and others. Mm. Yes. Yes. So uh, uh, that's correct. Like we, uh, um, uh, if you want to see the nature of uh, an independent self really clear, you you can see it when we get angry. Yeah. So. Well, we're going to see a very, yeah, it's, well, it's going to come up really clearly, you know. Um, uh, it, it is clear in desire, too, we can see, but uh, it's going to come up very clearly, and you can elicit it very quickly in someone. So if we're not in particularly desirous mood, um, we can say, you know, how about a really great this, or I have a really great this, or you'll have this experience, or I'll do this for you. And they might go, um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, I'm good, you know, just had dinner, so I'm not really interested, right? But almost every time we can piss someone off, <laughs> right? You know, it can be any circumstance. We're never too tired to get pissed off. We're never not interested in being pissed off. Yeah. So, and then uh, generally, even though desire burns things up and, of course, is destructive, like we're uh, eating up the planet, desire has a little bit of sense of preserving because it's a little closer to love, where the, uh, the idea uh, is anger is that we want to destroy it. So, um, there's a problem in translating the words for anger from Sanskrit and Tibetan um, because they, they always mean just destroy, hostile, you know, just, you know, completely wipe out. Um, so it's not generally talked about as being protective unless we're talking Vajra anger or something a little different. So in the old days, people used to say to the Dalai Lama, should you ever get angry? And he goes, no. Right? And then people would get all confused. Well, what if someone abuses your kid? And you know, you know. So, but it, the anger is always like it's destroying. It's destroying. Um, so that's why traditionally um, uh, you don't get angry at your teacher because that destroys samaya. You might say you could get probably spend you know like you spend lots of time going. Could it? Could 
could I, could we have these teachings and could we have this and and that kind of desire realm thing, which can be kind of needy, right? But and you, you wouldn't you'd get brushed off, maybe like you know, just go meditate and ask me next year for that empowerment or something. But uh, you, you don't. I'm just saying traditionally, you don't you don't like blow up at your teacher because that's seen as breaking samaya completely, and then it can be a repair, of course, but. Um, it, it's seen as more difficult to work with. I think it is. What do you think? I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, if you tell... Used to it. Pardon me? Used to yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And usually without warning, too. Yeah. But, um, yeah, gen- generally... Uh, that would be seen as not so good, yeah, like that. No, I think yes. it's interesting. Oh, go ahead. Why is the text set around a clock? Set around a clock, as in? The moon rises, the sun rises, the sun is Why is he using those, those metaphors? Yeah. Um, This is like Chandra. <laughs> what does Chandra mean? Moon. Yeah. Yeah. Stainless moon. Yeah. I think he's very interested in the moon. Yeah. Uh, there might be an esoteric meaning, like, you know, there are tantras about the night and day, and, and but, you know, the moon and the sun. Uh, or traditional, huh? Set around an entire day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the the life of the bodhisattva. Yes. In a single day. You think it's a single day? Autumn stars, you know, such a journey. Well, I'll have to check that out. That, I'm, I'm, now I'm intrigued. You know, we have to do some meditation now. I'll, I'll check that out, you know. Maybe I missed that. That would be interesting. Uh, Yeah, okay. Let's check that. Uh, that's an interesting idea. I like that. I like that, too. You know, like James Joyce meets Chandra Kirti. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in Sanskrit, yeah. In Sanskrit. Yes, yes, sorry. Yeah. I, the one thing that really struck me about this text is that Deva through the first five paramitas doesn't talk about wisdom. So he doesn't talk about um, the emptiness of, of the paramitas until he gets to the uh, sixth 
the Paramita. And then he says that the other ones are, aren't worthwhile without it. Yeah. But in this text, he's constantly saying. Yeah, he's, he's really harping away at it. Yeah. Uh, these texts need to be read uh, meditatively and remembered as uh, oral instructions that were written down. Okay, they're, they're, um, I don't think Chandrakirti necessarily just said, well, gosh, I'm going to write all this down. These were things he was teaching. Uh, people heard him say, uh, maybe they wrote him down and gave it back to him. Uh, maybe uh, his secretary probably put them together. And, well, it's Chandrakirti, right? So uh, they're meant to be taken as oral instructions, so they go over things, and same way with uh, Tsongkhapa, same way with Nagarjuna. Of course they're going to be put together in a formal pattern and kind of cleaned up, but we should read them as pith instructions. Then we're looking at it from a Dzogchen point of view, like what does this verse, this text say to me about my practice? What does this help me take a look at? Not getting the right answer or, you know, building up a philosophic system. Because a lot of times they're saying the same things in many different ways, right? I mean, with all the different ways they say things, we should have gotten it by now. Right? Because, you know, it's like, it's like going onto Google Maps and getting, you know, a hundred different ways to drive someplace. So we all need to do more practice, don't you think? Yeah. But, uh, it, it, isn't, it isn't totally linear where uh, you know, we have to get 100% one verse understanding before moving to the next. Read the whole thing like a poem. That makes sense, right? I'm always saying the same thing. And then, and then it'll, it'll sink into you and come back to you in different ways. We're more likely to read the thing several times, all the texts, and then during meditation or during the day, the um, the verse will flash at the right time with the right experiential moment. That's the way it's done in the monastery. The idea is you memorize the text, not trying to figure everything out ahead of time, but that the mind, we have so much trust in our Buddha nature that when, when we have it just kind of there, when the experience is there, and then the uh, words and the intellect, they snap together. It's not that you're reading this and got okay, I gotta totally, I gotta figure this out, and then I'll have some kind of enlightenment experience just by reading it. No, you've read it and you've embodied it, and you're kind of carrying it with you, and then at the right time, it, it clicks. Yes, it will. Okay, that's it. It will. But then that clicking thing, just use that metaphor. It's not like it. That that is spontaneous. But we set it up. But you know, it's kind of it's hovering here, and days, and then we're we're creating some kind of structure so it can happen. But it's happening, right? Yes. And all that can happen even if you're uh, like connecting exactly with the verse, but you know that same thing you talked about before, where you just know that I've heard that. I don't know the words, but it's connecting with whatever the experience. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It seems like for me the experience is in a moment I'm considering a different thought 
or action that I hadn't considered before. Like I'm working with Karameda, I've got the words in my mind, and I'm looking at it, and it's like, oh, this is frustrating. Is it? Oh, I have to wait extra in line. You know, well, great, what am I going to do with my time here? And then it seems to open up to the emptiness of the self in that moment by doing that practice itself, right? We can create the opportunity for, uh, Trung Pimshi used to call it, the mistake to happen. <laughs> or, you know, so, and, you know, insights uh, are mistakes. And, you know, it's kind of poetic way of saying that it's spontaneous. We, we kind of awkwardly, uh, you know, kind of fall into it. Because as long as we're trying to maintain our facade, we're, it's not going to happen, you see. So uh, that's why, uh, yes, um, teachers will try to uh, piss us off. Um, but um, and I like to think I'm pretty good at it, but um, uh, I've known real masters. But uh, you know, deeper than that is kind of creating the right uh, blend of support and awkwardness. So that's 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 why we do in a large way why we do all the rituals because there's this always this blend of kind of uh, flow and awkwardness at the same time. Anybody ever notice that, or does it all feel awkward? I don't know. But you 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 want to have that kind of two track of flow and awkwardness going together. Because ego is always going to want to make it, I'm just using it not psychologically, it's always going to make it, I just want things to flow, I don't want to look stupid, I want to be in the zone, and I want everything to go just fine, right? (coughs) Which is not totally illegitimate, it's just that then there's a little, an extra layer, like Chandrakirti is saying, of, you know, the self and the agent and all that. So we, we want to create a little awkwardness sometimes. Do you think I ever do that, or? Yeah. If, if I've never made you feel awkward, then uh, I need to. The hardest part is when there's just a million people in the audience. This has been a Lion's Roar Dharma Center recording. For more information, visit lionsroardharmacenter.org.